Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm joined this week, as always, by Chelsea Patterson-Sobelik and Travis Wusso. Chelsea, Travis, thanks for being here. It's great to be here, Jeff. Good to be with you guys. A few weeks ago, we had Laura Collins of the George W. Bush Presidential Center on to talk about border policy, because we here at the ERLC want to help you think well about the difficult issues of the day, like immigration. And as we anticipated then, we know now that there is a surge and a growing humanitarian crisis of unaccompanied minor children arriving at the U.S. southern border. But it's often the case that in these moments of great national interest and attention and news stories and conversation, there's often more heat than light on what's really going on, both from a policy debate as well as the conversation over the everyday functions of government. So we thought it would be helpful here a few weeks later after that initial conversation with our friend Laura to invite someone else to our roundtable who can help us understand these issues from their personal experience in the ways that policy actually functions regarding how our government shelters and cares for unaccompanied migrant children. So our guest for this week is Jonathan Hayes. Jonathan Hayes served as director of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, ORR, which is the agency of the federal government responsible for sheltering and caring for unaccompanied migrant children. ORR, an acronym that you'll hear us refer to regularly, is in the Department of Health and Human Services. He served as director of ORR until March of 2020, when he went on to join the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response until January 2021, which is notable because that was a very important agency during the COVID pandemic. Prior to joining HHS, Jonathan served as chief of staff to two members of Congress spanning over eight years. Additionally, he has experience in the private sector and broadcast television, sales, marketing, and, and other things as well. Jonathan received his Bachelor of Science degree in business administration, a minor in political science from Florida State University. He was born in Mississippi, but raised in Panama City, Florida. He now lives in Virginia with his wife, Tammy, and their five children. Jonathan is also an elder at McLean Presbyterian Church. Jonathan, thanks for joining Chelsea, Travis, and me today. Uh, absolutely. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Jonathan and I are former Hill colleagues. Jonathan was actually my boss when we worked on the Hill, so this will be fun. Yes, Absolutely. Well, and I, what I was going to say, Jonathan, is I've been really looking forward to this conversation. I have heard uh, from from many people uh, across the political spectrum who uh, hold you in very high regard um, and have related that your services or director uh, from the political staff all the way to uh, you know to the career staff are regarded as one of the one of ORR's finest. Uh, directors in many many years, so we're we're very excited to have you on uh, and to uh, to hear your perspective. Thank you for those kind words, Travis. It was an honor to serve. All right, so Jonathan, as I mentioned at the start of the show, we've been covering this current surge at the southern border, which uh, really like like ones before it in 2019, 2014, these types of surges at the border can quickly become humanitarian crises. And today's crisis here in 2021, uh, as we wrote in a recent explainer uh, up on our website, which I will link to in the show notes, uh, you know, really centers on the delay of these children being in border facilities too long 
rather than into the custody of the agency that you once led, ORR, that not only legally should handle their care, but actually can handle uh, their care uh, and, and their shelter. So as a former federal official, help people understand why that delay might happen. Yeah, so so that's a great question. And uh, I know you referenced at the beginning of this recording that, uh, you know, you had uh, Laura on uh, a few weeks ago, and, and I did listen to that podcast. And I would just say that I want to underscore one of the things that she said several times is that these issues are very complex. Uh, the entire uh, immigration system and, and process uh, for for our country. And so I think one of the best things to kind of like kind of level set, you know, the whole process like very beginning, when, when any child uh, or, or any um, immigrant is is detained by our Customs and Border Patrol agents, whether it's at an LPOE, which is a land port of entry, or more importantly, in between those LPOEs by the Border Patrol agents, um, and they are deemed to be an unaccompanied alien child or, or just UAC uh, per statute, they are then referred to the Department of Health and Human Services. Now, obviously, HHS uh, is not a law enforcement uh, agency. Uh, we don't make any type of laws regarding immigration uh, or enforcement of said immigration laws. And so it falls to a, a DHS and specifically the Customs and Border Protection folks to identify them as, a, as an unaccompanied alien child and then refer them to HHS at ORR so that we can then assign them a shelter uh, so that we can provide care for them uh, and then seek to find a sponsor for them to stay at. Uh, while they wait their court date for either asylum claim or to try to get uh, appropriate status and relief through an immigration judge at the Executive Office of Immigration Review at Department of Justice. So that is kind of just a very rough process. Now, one thing that I think is very key and and honestly what kind of caused a lot of confusion over the last number of years is that there are a lot of laws. And I know we'll kind of get into that a little bit more in the podcast, but there are a lot of laws and regulations surrounding this. If you are found in the United States illegally as a child, and you are with an adult sibling or an aunt or uncle or grandparent, that is not considered a separation. You are at that point considered a UAC according to statute. It's only if you're with mom or dad or a legal guardian where you would be considered a separation. So, so even if you come across with an adult sibling or a grandparent you know, uh, or an aunt or uncle, they're still going to um, you know, take you and send you to ORR to go through the process that requires that. And so under normal circumstances, when, when ORR has plenty of capacity, it doesn't take very long at all for CBP to determine that you know, this, is a, this is a UAC, refer them, uh, and then, then the DHS officials bring that child to ORR, depending on whatever shelter we assign to that child. And a lot of things will go into that decision as to where we refer them. And, you know, for DHS to bring them. And, you know, because we have almost 200 uh, at the time that I left ORR, we had about 200 facilities roughly in about 23 different states. So you can imagine the network that we have to care for these for these UAC. So, you know, the majority of the UAC over the years have been teenage boys. So our system and our, and our shelter system were really set up for that. But we started seeing uh, more young girls come across, more sibling groups. So where you might have a two or three siblings where one or two is a teenager and the others are much younger. And so, uh, a, you know, a shelter that's all teenagers would be appropriate. So we want to make sure we keep those families together. So we had to start, you know, increasing, um, you know, shelters that could handle that. And then tender age kids and then even the really younger kids, which we consider like five and under, very sad uh, at times, um, you know, so it's, 
the the stories and and what I saw. And, I, and I'll just say this because I think this is uh, this was you know one of my my driving approaches to my role as first chief of staff and then OR uh, and the OR director. And I visited about a hundred of those two hundred shelters uh, in addition to the visiting dozens and dozens of the resettlement agencies as well, because I really wanted to see firsthand the work that was getting done out in the field and not just sit, you know, here in the DC bubble uh, and try to run such a, a, a you know, a complicated and intense and very deep uh, program uh, that, as you all know, you know, 2017, 2018, 2019 had a ton of visibility uh, and and pressure on it, uh, you know, from from Congress, from from the media, from advocacy groups, from local and state officials, and so, you know, a lot of these shelters, again, about half of them, I I saw uh, firsthand. Uh, in fact, many of the more high profile ones, I made five, six, seven, even a dozen trips to them. So so that's kind of the rough process, uh, kind of like how how it works. And you know, once the child comes into uh, to OR uh, care and custody. They undergo rather a, a full IME, an initial medical exam, and that's very important too to make sure that the child, if there's any immediate health needs we need to take care of, uh, we will absolutely provide that. Uh, and also I want to make sure that there aren't any infectious diseases, uh, most often flu or tuberculosis, before we put them into the general community of that shelter. Uh, potentially putting other kids' health at risk as well. Yeah, Jonathan, thank you so much for that overview. I want to um, kind of zoom in on some of the things you said, um, just to kind of define the terms for our listeners. So can you walk us through when a child is received by ORR, what happens first? Where do they go first? So are they first taken to that medical facility? Or are they first taken to the shelter? Um, what are those shelters like? Can you kind of walk us through what the the very next step is? Again, one of the main deciding factors is what is the information we have on the child from DHS? Now, as you can imagine, if the numbers in their care and custody at DHS and the numbers coming across the border are much lower, then obviously the DHS officials have more time to spend with that child and get more information. So the decisions that we make as far as referring from ORR's perspective, what shelter that child will be referred to is dependent on the information that we have from the field, from the DHS officials. So as you can imagine, a lot of times we don't have a ton of information other than age and gender and if there's any real you know, glaring medical issues or concerns. So when a child arrives at whatever facility uh, we refer them to, uh, DHS will transport them to them and then at that point ORR accepts custody of that child. One of the first things we want to do is make sure that they're comfortable. So that usually re you know, relates to a hot shower, a good meal and a good night's sleep. Unless, of course, there's any real immediate medical needs that need attention. That's typically how the children arrive. And almost all of our shelters uh, have um, the ability to do the medical care on site. Some of the smaller ones have, you know, contracts with local pediatricians who come two, three, four, five days a week, depending on what's necessary and, 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 and appropriate to schedule. But most of them have uh, at least nurses on site 24 seven, especially some of the more medium and larger size facilities. So the, 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 uh, the IME, the initial medical exam uh, will be performed on site there uh, for the most part, because we wanna get the child into the general community and, and schedule the shelter just as soon as possible and begin the process of uh, finding them a family to unify with. So you mentioned a few minutes ago, um, you look for, for sponsors. Who are these sponsors? How does ORR locate them? Can you walk us through that process a little bit? 
some of the children arrive, uh, obviously, you know, with a piece of paper already in hand with, hey, this is where, you know, my uncle's in Chicago or my grandfather's in San Antonio, and this is where I want to end up. And so we it, that makes it very easy. But a lot of times we found out more about the children once they arrive in our care and our, our case workers and our clinicians start spending time with the children. We learn more about their story. And uh, and so, you know, and then that that, you know, that process can be, you know, something that can take place in, in a couple of two or three, four days. And they're already on the way to that family member after the background checks and stuff are done to some that can take several months. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's a very different process. I will say one thing that's important is. Uh, you know, we have we kind of classified the children into into four different categories, um, you know, because, you know, relationships with certain family members is different. So, you know, we kind of classified category one is the, the sponsor is going to be like a mom or a dad uh, or like a legal guardian. Legal guardianships coming out of third world countries in the Northern Triangle are, are very rare. So usually it's mom or dad. Category two is, is you know, a more closer family member, but not to the mom or dad level. So that would be aunt, uncle grandparent or adult sibling. Uh, and then a third a third category is a more distant family member, um, you know, anybody that I didn't really already describe, uh, or a family friend uh, where a relationship can, you know, can be established and confirmed. And then unfortunately, category four are children where there are no identifiable sponsors here in the United States. And during my time uh, at ORR, Anywhere from 20 to 30 percent, even a couple of times over 30 percent of the children in our care at the time were uh, category four, which means, again, no identifiable sponsors in the U.S. And that that can make it very difficult uh, to find them a sponsor and and get them out of our shelters as quick as possible and in with family uh, or friends. And, and I'll just say there were a small number of the children that, you know, once they came into our care and and got to know the case managers and the clinicians and the youth care workers that care for them. Uh, at the ORR shelters, you know, they opened up more about, you know, their journey, their their childhood, their their family back home, and then eventually would admit, yes, you know, I, I do have a relative here, and and so then that process can start. But really, the you know the the, the bulk of those category fours truly are uh, children without any sponsors identifiable in the United States. So, Jonathan, that is, I I can't imagine what that is like for a young child to arrive in a a new country with no no family here. What happens to those kids when a sponsor can't be located? So if they if it is if it's a child where there truly is no identifiable sponsor in the U.S., then their time with with HHS could be longer, and so that has an impact on the average length of care. We kind of look at a couple of metrics generally when I was in the role of director, and you know one of the things we're always concerned about is okay, what is the average length of care considering the entire community? of children uh, that were in our care at the time. And so, you know, we always wanted to see that. When I took over uh, in uh, as director in late November of 2019, I'm sorry, 2018, um, that number was uh, around 90 or a little bit over. Uh, and when I left, we got it down to around 40. So we more than cut it in half um, and, and, you know, very proud of that because, you know, our, our, you know, our belief and my belief, uh, both as, as a government official, but also as, as a Christian was that, you know, Children need to be with with family. Uh, that's the best place for them. But for the category fours, unfortunately, some of those kids, you know, we've there were a, a few that had been in our care for like six, seven years, uh, pretty much grown up. But you know, one of the things we might try to do in that situation is put them in what we call TFC, which is temporary or transitional foster care. 
we had both you know foster care beds across the whole ORR network. Some of them are TFC or transitional uh, foster care, and then others are uh, LTFC, which is long-term foster care. The difference is in order to go into the long-term foster care option, you had to have the potential for or already identified legal relief uh, down the road. Because when you go into long-term foster care, you get more plugged into uh, to the local community or into just like you would with a sponsor and schooling. Because, uh, again, there's some potential legal relief down the road. With a transitional foster care child, you're going to you know, stay with that family you know, pretty much all the time. But, but Monday through Friday or like during school time, they come back to our facility um, where we run uh, a, a program for that. And we do the schooling and the case management and the clinical work there. Uh, so Burnett would bring them to the ORR shelter like they would take them to school. But other than that, they're staying with the family you know, nights, evenings, weekends, and, and regular family type travel. Jonathan, I'm, I've got a series of questions for you just about the the laws surrounding some of this stuff. But to sort of pick up there, are there, you know, for, for Category 4 kids, these kids are not eligible for adoption, correct? That is correct. Um, and, and I'll say, you know, there there were some uh, in the advocacy world that that pushed for people to be able to sponsor them without any family connection or any family relationship and uh, honestly, we resisted that. Uh, I personally resisted that because I kind of viewed that in a lot of ways as a soft adoption, um, you know, because that was the way the structure, um, you know, was established. And Congress would have to make some changes to those laws to allow that. And that, you know, that that's on them, but didn't really feel comfortable, you know, uh, allowing that. So what we would encourage people that wanted to do that was if you do want to, you know, take in a child like that, then, you know, go through your respective state and get into the foster care system. And we were more than happy to identify, um, you know, which grantees uh, within that state, you know, had foster care uh, systems and were working with ORR uh, in that regards. But no, there is no opportunity to adopt these kids. We, we never at ORR, we never stop trying to figure out, okay, is there family, you know, okay, well, if, if there is no potential for getting any type of legal status here in the United States, okay, what are the opportunities to, you know, to, to maybe get them back to their country of origin? Uh, now that, because of some of the laws you referenced, like the Trafficking Victim Protection Reauthorization Act, or TVPRA, you know, there was a process in that, and that takes time, and we have to kind of make sure that we, you know, cross all the T's and dot all the I's and not really rush through that process. But that's kind of how that would play out if we, you know, didn't have anybody, but, but, you know, but to your point, you know, we didn't allow just people to come in and adopt the children. Uh, we would rather encourage them to get into the foster care system uh, and become one of our foster parents. Yeah. And, and I mean, without a doubt, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a thorny issue. I mean, you know, having been in some of the, you know, some of the advocacy discussions around that to sort of allow wholesale or widespread adoption of unaccompanied children would have many unintended consequences could itself create uh, new migrant flows and and all sorts of things that that we we, we would need to you know we would need to think about uh, as crafting you know as part of crafting an overall uh, policy proposal. Um, yeah, I'll just say, Travis, you're absolutely right, and that was one of our issues is just the unintended consequences of that and what that could absolutely lead to. And then and then honestly, once that happens, then we at ORR and HHS, you know, then we lose any of that legal custody over that child. And so if we then learn, you know, oh well. You know, the mom wants the child back in home country or or now the mom has made the journey up and has been granted asylum or and then we've you know, the child has been adopted out. 
you know, and it's been five years and say the child was six or seven, you know, yeah. as was read in my bio, I have five children and I can just tell you from age six or seven up to 12 or 13, that's a pretty significant development stage in the life of a child and to come in and then say, okay, now we found family and things like that. So yes, there are tons of unintended consequences around that. So, and I only kind of step into the weeds just a little bit is to understand that there's not a resistance not to put family or children with, with families that would want to be their forever families. Cause I think that is a critical part of providing care for, for children that need a family. Uh, but again, we haven't really confirmed, you know, necessarily where these children's families might be. And if they might one day maybe want them back in country of origin because, you know, they didn't expect to be detained and end up in, in the custody of the federal government. So, yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And, and I think just, you know, to sort of put a fine point on on one of the points that you were making, Jonathan, you know, in order for a child legally to be adopted by another family, you have to terminate the parental rights of of their biological parents. And, and, and we don't have that authority at, at ORR. Right, exactly. Well, and, and you know, and especially with respect to a Category 4 child, you don't have, you know, you don't have a lot of information about what, you know, what are the intentions of the parents and, and that kind of thing. So I, I want to sort of going back to, you know, maybe where we started uh, in terms of, you know, the length of time of, of custody between uh, CBP uh, or the Department of Homeland Security and, um, you know, and, and HHS. This is an area that that, uh, you know, we've done some writing on in this in this most recent surge and, you know, is an area of concern that we've had before. But talk to us a little bit about the Flores settlement and 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 what's and some of the laws surrounding that issue. So, uh, yeah, so there are, a, you know, there are a ton of laws and, that guide all of that and, and even the Flores settlement agreement, which is basically an agreement between, you know, several advocacy groups and the federal government. Um, late 90s, I don't remember exactly which year but definitely in the late 90s. And that basically, it, it had a, a direct, you know, basically effect on how long a child can stay in, in a facility that did not meet the Flores standards. So, you know, all of HHS, you know, all of our shelters at ORR rather, meet the, the obviously the Flores settlement standards. Um, obviously, uh, Customs and Border uh, Protection processing facilities do not. Many of the ICE facilities do, the more family type uh, residential units. Uh, where the you know kids can get school, they can provide the medical care. It's it's more beds. I think one of the things that's very important is that as far as as the cages are concerned, and and I think to just take a little bit of a moment here and just defend the great work that the men and women of the Customs and Border Patrol do each and every day. They are not designed to really hold anybody, uh, single adults, families, unaccompanied children, for any real length of time. Um, you know, past it, past just you know, several hours to maybe a day or two as they determine, okay, this is where this person needs to be referred to, whether it's a unaccompanied child to HHS, to ORR, uh, whether it's uh, an adult or family that might be referred to ICE, uh, or if they're able to repa repatriate them, those are processing centers. And so those are, are the infamous cages. And, and the, the problem that we see is people see these, these kids and these families behind these fences, and it's, None of us likes to see that, okay? And I can assure you, because we had numerous conversations with CBP officials on a regular basis, the last thing they want is unaccompanied children sitting in their processing centers. They want those kids at, at ORR just as quick as possible, <laughs> maybe even faster than we did at ORR, because that's not their role. They are law enforcement, and they've already identified this child as a UAC. 
And so, uh, but when your when your capacity is limited uh, at, at HHS and, and ORR, you know, it, it does take time to maybe find the appropriate, uh, you know, the bed, and that takes time. And and I'll just take a quick side note here. Literally all of our shelters at ORR, with the exception of an emergency influx shelter, are licensed in the respective states in which they operate. So take, for example, Florida. We got a permanent facility brought online uh, during the time I was the director down there in Palm Beach. I want to say it's about 130 uh, beds for teenage girls. We can't even go in there and put 131 girls in there without the permission of the Department of Children and Families inside the state, or it could affect our license. But I just think the point is, is that these, you know, the Border Patrol Processing Centers are what they are. And, you know, they're not meant to hold anybody for any real length of time. It's, it's a processing center. But, you know, the alternative is if you don't have a bed yet at ORR or, or an available shelter. Um, and, you know, and I mean, I, I don't, you know, what do people want to do? Just open the, open the gate and just let these children wander out? That's not an option either. So it's it's a very difficult situation. It, it is very complex, like Laura said a few weeks ago. Uh, and and the, the key is, is, and it's what we tried to do when, when I was uh, the director um, with the strong support of Assistant Secretary Johnson, was increase our license permanent capacity. That's, that's, the, that's the key because as we testified and gave the numerous interviews over the time that we were there, it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. And that win is now. Um, we knew there would be another surge eventually. And so I know that our, our Customs and Border Protection um, you know, professionals are in a really tough spot right now. I want to sort of underscore that point. I mean, in, in my, my own travels to the border and my own work on this issue, you know, one, one of the things I've been struck by is how each agency that has a role in this process, whenever you're dealing with a surge like we are now, is really stuck. Because every agency is its own kind of bottleneck and has its own resource problems that it alone can't solve, um, you know. And and so even you know even what's happening now, yes, it's a resource problem. But as you just you know as you just discussed, um, you know CBP is in you know is in a very difficult position themselves uh, in terms of expanding their own capacity. And so you know this is you know this is one of the reasons why. Uh, when when we talk about this issue, we continue to come back to the reality that Congress has got to solve this problem. Um, they they have they have got to uh, wade into it. It's complicated. It's politically uh, fraught. Uh, it's you know there there are political landmines all around here. But I think we all can agree, uh, regardless of where you know where you sit on the political spectrum, that what we have right now is not acceptable, and we've 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 got to fix it. Absolutely. So, um, Jonathan, as we are wrapping up, we've talked a lot about government's role and responsibility in um, caring for these children. For our listeners whose hearts are burdened for these migrant children, how can they help? Um, where would you, um, where would you point them to to be able to help these these children or help um, migrants crossing the border? You know, I'll just say that um, first off, all of the resources needed inside ORR specifically. Uh, are met with the funding that we have, the needs of the child from from healthcare uh, and and you know food and bed and uh, you know and, and education as we work to find the sponsor uh, for the child. That's all taken care of. But you know there are you know ways we kind of talked earlier in the podcast about you know some of the children that you know where there are no identifiable sponsors in the U.S. If you want to get into to the foster care system of your respective state, 
uh, and, and they can let you know which one of the ORR grantees uh, you know, facilitate those uh, both transitional foster care or temporary foster care and also long-term foster care options inside the respective state. I think that would be huge. Um, as far as, you know, the migrant facilities, uh, you know, I'd have to, you know, defer to my colleagues at DHS to see how they could, you know, potentially help, uh, you know, along the border with, you know, some of the, some of the crisis and the needs there. But um, getting back to, to the complexity of it, you know, I think that, you know, it's it is a it is a, a very definitely a very broken system, um, and and I would say one thing that that we can all do, especially as Christians, is realize that, um, you know, and I think that this has kind of been, in my opinion, uh, you know, this is not necessarily reflective of, of any HHS or former OR officials. Uh, this is just Jonathan Hayes's opinion as a, as a former official and 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 as a believer in that. I think we've, we've made a mistake over the last number of years in not recognizing that we can have compassion for uh, the, the migrants, uh, especially the unaccompanied children that are in our care and in our custody in the federal government, but also realize that, you know, we are a nation of laws and, you know, we do not have a secure border. And if you don't have a secure border, you know, that's kind of, you're, you're basically inviting uh, people to make that that dangerous journey. And, and I, you know, Laura touched on some of the heart-wrenching things that these kids go through, especially some of the young girls at the beginning of their trip and during the trip. And, and I have heard many of those testimonies firsthand. And so, you know, I, I think that I don't know how, you know, we believe that those two became mutually exclusive. I think you can have compassion uh, and, and indeed care deeply for the migrants and especially the children, but realize, look, our immigration system is broken. We need to secure our border. Uh, and, you know, one way that Congress might consider doing that is, okay, let's maybe secure the border, but how can we make the path to seeking asylum, getting legal status through, you know, through more of the Department of, of State and, and PRM over there, uh, Population, Refugees and Migration, um, and, and the whole process to that, uh, you know, elevate the number of legal um, uh, you know, immigrants and refugees that come into our country and then, and then secure that border. Uh, so, you know, I think that's just kind of been, in my opinion, uh, just kind of a, a, a mistake and tactical kind of people acting like you can't have both of those at the same time. And I rejected that. That was my approach that immigration systems broken. Uh, we need to secure our border for a number of different reasons, but we can have compassion for and care for these families, especially these children, because um, we're all made in the image of God. Uh, I believe that, and that drove uh, a lot of the decisions uh, I made uh, as an official and, and, and as the head of ORR. Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us. You know, we appreciate your service and uh, really appreciate uh, you taking the time to be with us today to uh, unpack all of this with us and, uh, and for our listeners, and uh, we look forward to being in touch with you. That sounds great. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. If you enjoyed our conversation today with Jonathan Hayes and think it might be helpful to somebody in your community or family or group of friends that you've been talking about this crisis at our southern border with, send them a link to this podcast. This really will help others find our show in these important conversations. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations wherever you are listening so you never miss an episode. Resources from today's episodes are available in the show notes and as always at ERLC.com. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we look forward to being back together with you next week.